Welcome to The Crux. Each week, two of the world's top communicators take you behind the scenes of the news of the day to explore the crux of communications that are shaping business, politics, and our daily lives. Hi, this is Gary Sheffer. And hi, I'm Mike Fernandez, and we're glad to be with you from Boston University. Welcome back to The Crux. This is Gary Sheffer, and uh, on, on the phone with me this week is uh, Mike Fernandez. Hey, Mike. Hey, Gary. How you doing? I'm doing really well. We're here in the studio, the Crux studio, uh, <laughs> with our producers, uh, Amanda and Rachel. So yeah. uh, I've been fascinated lately, Mike, with, with some of these, the litigation uh, results against major companies and its reputation yeah. effect. And so you saw the J&J, Johnson & Johnson on baby powder, some big multi-billion dollar verdicts on talc and its relationship yep. to cancer. And just recently, um, Bear, uh, in yep. its purchase of Monsanto, got the product in the portfolio, got the product Roundup, which is a weed killer. Mm-hmm. And yeah, again, and again, commonly used, you know, um, yep. lots of folks, including... At, I'm sure, I'm uh, sure I've used it in my garden. Totally, exactly. <laughs> it works. And, and uh, but again, a big verdict involving cancer against the company and now some folks calling into question the wisdom of Bayer buying Monsanto when you've got these kinds of things in the portfolio and and um, I, I've I've I'm always fascinated looking in from the outside at these companies yeah. on how the communicator works with lawyers um, oh yeah when there's litigation risk and yeah. and yeah. and what you can and can't say um, and it gets even more complicated because um, you say things in the courtroom that maybe you don't want to even say publicly um, as a part of the reputation uh, communications plan associated with this litigation, these trials. So yeah. I, I, I know you've been through some of these, and oh, as have I. Some of these, too many. <laughs> <laughs> so you were, you, know, t- you were telling it, me a great story about uh, some of your experiences here. Yeah, yeah. well, you know, first of all, the, the, the bias in large organizations, large corporations especially, is when you get into a fix that uh, requires litigation is to kind of let the lawyers run the show. And they tend to want to protect evidence, uh, their client, and they don't want their client to say anything for fear whatever they may say uh, may make them more culpable or uh, may lead uh, to maybe even a bigger judgment against them in a court of law. Meanwhile, the court of public opinion is merciless yes. in taking its toll. You know, customers, consumers, suppliers, employees, communities, they grow anxious in the void if nothing is said. And if there's a, a group of people that have been hurt or traumatized by something perceptively that maybe the company was engaged with, and they don't voice any empathy, that can be a killer. Yes. And what ultimately happens is a lot of these companies and organizations, while they're looking at the cost associated with the trial, sometimes they forget about the, the cost of damage to reputation. Right. Um, and so what, what I've tried to do in uh, situations where uh, you have large litigation risk is to try and better understand what is happening with a lot of those uh, key stakeholders, key publics, and do survey research. When I was at State Farm, they brought me in after Hurricane Katrina. 
And what was fascinating <laughs> around that is the company already did a lot of extensive survey research on a national basis. And it was like every quarter there would be a report out both on our customers as well as um, the entire U.S. population right. in order to get a glean on where prospective customers were vis-a-vis uh, -vis current customers. Well, in dealing with this challenge, we decided to make that a monthly survey and to oversample in areas that were hit by Hurricane Katrina Interesting. so that we could look at kind of what was being said, what were various stakeholders concerned about, uh, but also how they reacted to steps that we began uh, to take more aggressively in terms of telling our own story. And that served a great purpose, so much so that, you know, probably three years out from the hurricane, we actually had a better reputation uh, both in the Gulf Coast and across the U.S. than we had prior to Hurricane Katrina hitting. Great. Yeah. And that's how you have to demonstrate to the lawyers somehow you know, they and and I don't mean to generalize here, but I no, will right. for brevity is, you know, they don't understand the value of they understand the value of litigation risk. You know, they understand yeah. that. Right. They're laying um, uh, playing likelihood versus the risk cost. But, you know, this right. was a lesson. The story you just told is great. I, I learned that when I was, a you know, sort of a rookie sort of cub CCO way back in the day that uh, from Ray Jordan, when he was at. J&J, &J, mm -hmm. and they were suing the Red Cross or contemplating suing the Red Cross over the, you know, the Red Cross logo, the Red Cross itself, mm -hmm. right, which <laughs> was also on Band-Aids, you know, uh, the real Band-Aids uh -huh. that J&J &J made and all and some other products. And so, you know, Ray, was, we were talking to Ray at one of these conferences, and he said, we're going to do before and after reputation. You know, suing the Red Cross doesn't sound like a great strategy to me from a reputation uh -huh. standpoint. <laughs> but the idea of doing before and after, and uh, as I remember, it's a long time ago, um, showed the same kind of results um, that you saw at yeah. State Farm. was. Which... Well, well, I'll take you back even further. In an earlier day, I was doing some work for Eastman Kodak Company when it was a top 10 global brand. And at one point, they decided uh, to sue uh, uh, Paul Simon over the song Kodachrome. <laughs> That's a great song. <laughs> it is a great song. And it was actually probably helpful to the brand. Wow. Wow. Well, maybe we'll have to have do that, uh, make that our bumper, out bumper music or something. Mike. Uh, there you go. Hey, there so, go. so um, uh, on this, I'll just tell a really quick story. So for the communicators listening and for our, our producers here in the studio, Amanda and Rachel, um, here's the thing about dealing with um, lawyers, particularly litigators uh, mm -hmm. in, in, in your organization, is they are, they are trained, they are loaded, they are ready to win, <laughs> right? That's, right? That's right. what they are, you know, is, is they're ready to win. Now, they're all good people. They share, you know, you know they have good values and, and incredible integrity, but they're there to win. So I can remember in a couple instances uh, when uh, GE was getting sued when I was the uh, CCO there, where they encouraged me to have a very aggressive media relations strategy on a particular uh, case, litigation, that kind of thing, somebody suing the company. 
and you know Gary let, you know let's really sort of go after them and 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 show um you know we're going to uh, win this we're going to win this in the courtroom and uh so you do uh based on the relationship of trust you have with these folks and they're look they're great people and then a few months later you say hey what happened to that case where we sort of carpet bombed the opposition and um they'll say oh we settled that case now mm-hmm. again mm-hmm. They're trying to do what is best for the company. They're doing it the right way. But just mm-hmm. remember that that they have a different uh, purpose than you do, which is to reduce yes. reduce risk, reduce liability for the company. And you, Absolutely. So, so I, I just say that as a piece of advice yes. for, for folks out yeah. there. Yeah, and before we leave this topic, I should say that the lawyers at State Farm were terrific yeah. allies uh, or grew to become terrific allies. And we would we basically said, you know, we're no longer as a company going to take a pose where we say no comment. Yeah. Um, and instead, what what we created was a model whereby uh, within the public relations organization, uh, we determined what we wanted to say in given situations. And. Uh, and then they worked with us to be clear about what we could say without, you know, crossing a certain boundary. And we were able to make the empathetic statements. Yeah. We were able to communicate directly and timely uh, with various stakeholders. It was enormously helpful. But it came back to setting up, you know, a structure, a framework by which we would actually communicate great, and they would be comfortable. Great thing. Yeah, my agreement with the general counsel at GE was help me get to yes. Your job is there to you ha- go. help me get Absolutely. to yes. Absolutely. So let's go to a, a more... Speaking of, yeah. Yeah, let's go to a... F- to yes, you and I are big, <laughs> are, are big baseball fans. Uh, we're in the midst of the opening days of the 2019 season, and Gary and I have the dubious distinction of being... Big time, aye, I mean, aye, really yeah. uh, big time. New York Yankee fans. Rachel and Amanda and are cheering the Red here Sox. And we're speaking here at Boston University. I know. You know. In the midst of Red Sox Nation. So uh, so Major League Baseball, Gary, is really kind of at an interesting inflection point in my mind. I remember back in the fall of 2017 in the midst of the NFL, the National Football League's heightened noise around national anthem kneeling, and Morning Consult, the D.C.-based polling yep. firm, Uh, did an interesting survey on the various major sports in America. And they had this thing that they called a divisiveness index. Mm -hmm. And not surprisingly, at that particular particular point, they found that the NFL by far was the most divisive major sport in America. And that was by more than a two-to-one ratio uh, when compared to the NBA Major League Baseball. Yeah, I can see that. that. Yeah. Now, that said... Despite having some today, I think really remarkable young stars, baseball is less likely to be played by young people than when we were growing up. Mm-hmm. It costs more to actually get into the sport, and almost always had. You needed a bat, you needed a ball, <laughs> you needed a glove. Compared to, you know, if you were playing a pickup game on the streets, all you needed was a single basketball right. that could be shared, or a single football that could be shared. And then the game is slower and longer than many major sports. And seemingly that seems to frustrate maybe younger audiences. And to top it off, despite the incredible talent, that incredible talent doesn't get 
the same attention that the stars in the NBA, yeah. like LeBron James, or in, even in the NFL, like Tom Brady. Uh, they just don't seem to be that active. And I know you've been doing some research around that particular question. What, what are you guys learning? Yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm working on an independent study project with a student here at BU, and the the sort of leading question of that is, you know, has has social media affected the brand value of the different leagues? And, and the four leagues um, the students looking at are the two NBAs, WNBA and NBA, and Major League Baseball and the NFL. And it's it's difficult to pin down the absolute value of the NFL brand value, et cetera. Uh, but you can look at the value of the teams. And the mm-hmm. the brand value of the of uh, the top ten is is dominated by NBA and and uh, even the Knicks are in the top ten for mm-hmm. goodness sake the terrible terrible Knicks how how is that possible exactly exactly <laughs> so this student has done really great work and um, for Major League Baseball it's this thing is one their social media has tended to focus uh, regionally right been very local yeah. you know in its reach. Uh, not as creative as mm-hmm. the NFL particularly. The NFL has been very uh, good at uh, building what we call fandom um, mm-hmm. with, with its uh, um, you know, particular fans of the teams. But um, you know, it's this anonymity of the baseball players, and, and the league uh, seems to realize it and is trying to do some different things. Um, you know, one of the s- stars who's sort of a mid-level star, not the big superstar like Mike Trout, um, et cetera, mm-hmm. of the Angels, but this uh, person from, uh, player from the the Astros, Alex Bregman, who's a good player, is trying mm-hmm. to break out. Big story. In Very sport. good. Yeah, he's uh, trying to break out on social media, recognizing that um, Major League Baseball hasn't been able to break through like the LeBrons or, you know, the Kobe's, the Kevin Durant's. And we've looked, we've talked to folks who do sports PR. We've talked to academics who study sports. Um, it, it's really an interesting area that hasn't been studied a lot, but what you come down to, it's all about content. That's engaging, creative, uh, humorous, and uh, human. And you can see, yeah. one of the trends we're seeing too, Mike, is in places like the NHL, where it's hard to see a player in action because they've got mm-hmm. the helmet and all the gear on, is the uh-huh. league's focusing on off-ice uh, activities, like players with their helmets off flipping pucks to young people whose birthday and that kind of thing. So all Bears the, also become a big issue. Yeah, <laughs> exactly, you know. And, and, and yes, exactly right. So, so I'm I love baseball. Um, you know, the Yankees season is not off to a great start. Um, but if the league is going to solve its problems, yeah, the, the our producers here are crying fake crocodile tears for us here in Boston. Um, <laughs> is is um is the social media work of the Major League Baseball in basketball? You've got five players on the court; they're very visible. Yeah. Baseball, you got nine players on a big, broad field. It's hard to hum- you know what I also humanize them. If the, fact, if, if the fact that, like, in the NBA and even in NFL, a lot of the younger stars actually were stars in college, but we don't have that yes. easy transference in Major League Baseball because most of the kids, they, when they get drafted out of college, they spend another, you know, two or three years in the minors before they're even considered to be brought up. Yeah. 
You know, another thing that I, I never knew until we, I did this work, uh, the student's name is Sydney Jurisol, and she, she has um, found that even the hashtags that you use are incredibly important that the teams use. And every year there's a ranking that comes out of the best and worst hashtags for the different teams. And so just a little change in, in the creativity of your hashtag can create more engagement. And so, so it's a fascinating area of study. Not a lot of work has been done on it, and BU has been great enough to help mm -hmm. uh, Sydney mm -hmm. put together what I think is going to be a great, great paper. So um, so can the, can the sport of our youth be saved? I, you know what? I, I think... It can. I think they're overreacting in some ways, Mike, uh, I uh, on the rules front, you know, like uh -huh. minimum number of batters you have to face as a pitcher. I, I just think that's tinkering with the fundamentals of the game. Now, mm -hmm. can they speed it up? Can they shorten the commercial breaks? You bet. You know, yeah. you bet. Yeah. And that they're going to yeah. have to do that, um, and they're going to have to be more connected with youth through social media. Well, and I know that they've just started a program within the last year or so uh, trying to reach out to urban youth yes. uh, to, to play the game, and I think that's great. So one last question on this before we change Yeah, what gears. wait a minute. What, what, what position did you play, by the way, Mike? I played uh, third base and outfield and pitcher. I had a strong arm. Excellent, excellent. I'm a big guy. You yeah, know? you are. That's true. That's yeah, yeah. But, 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 but anyway, my big question for you is our Yanks won 100 games last year. Yeah. They beat the A's in the wild card game. Then, then they lost three out of four against Boston in the yeah. divisional series. What's the prediction for this year? I, I think now they've got a, their third baseman is down for the year, it looks like, already. Yeah. I yeah. think they're going to win like 95 games, get a place in the, um, in the wild card, and probably not go much farther than that. What do you think? 103 games, we're going to take it all. <laughs> I love you, Mike. I love you. You got a, a strong arm and a strong sense of optimism. All right, let's move you on. You have to. You have to, I know. I know. Living here in Boston, you have to. Uh, I, I did like last year when the Red Sox won the World Series. I heard outside my apartment here in Boston the chant, Yankees suck. And so that means... It, it tells you who they're focused on, right? Exactly. We're in their it head, It tells Mike. you who they fear. We're in their head. Okay. <laughs> I have always been fascinated. I come from an industrial financial company, and, you know, uh, consumer... You know, we didn't touch the consumers much other than through appliances and other things, and even that was sort of secondhand. I yeah. am fascinated by what it must be like to... Well, as you know, I, I've worked for a number of CPG companies. Like Kodak sold consumer products. Uh, clearly, when I was with uh, U.S. West, we were in the phone business. And then in retail food, uh, both through ConAgra and a little bit through, uh, uh, through Cargill. But Bruce Rohde once said, in fact, early on when he hired me, he was the CEO of then ConAgra Foods. It's now known as ConAgra Brands. But when he hired me, he said, the one thing you really have to realize is that, you know, in our space, in, in CPG, in food sold at retail, in our world, everything communicates. Mm -hmm. You exactly. know, so, so, so how, you, how you set up that product, where that product is in the aisle, what you put on the, on, on the commercial, how people even answer a phone in some of the, like, restaurant establishments. Uh, you know, yeah, people are focused on taste convenience and a price 
but there are lots of different issues today around food. And, uh, you know, there's a growing segment that cares about the ingredients, supply chain for exactly. those ingredients, where they came from, how they were sourced, whether there were any animals mishandled in the process, as well as a number of people also are concerned about the health of the products. Right. So uh, this is an industry that's not for the faint of heart. No, it's and fascinating. It's much, much more. And, and, much more complex than most of us think. And you can do everything right. You can have, yep. a, as a communicator and a, you know, a brand sort of champion, and then somebody, you know, an 18-year-old kid in a store at midnight, you know, thinks it's mm-hmm. funny to abuse the food, I guess, is the phrase, you know. Yeah, you know, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And, sudden, like and suddenly your brand, your, you know, your billion-dollar, multi-billion-dollar brand is in the hands of an 18-year-old kid. Yeah, the flip side of that, you can also have management that says stupid things. Oh, totally. You know, You're totally right. You know, so, 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 so you had a situation, you know, where uh, the head of Barilla, the pasta company out of Italy, uh, was on a radio program and said something uh, that was negative about gays and gay families. Yeah. The next thing you know, you've got a boycott of the product. Right, exactly. So I, I've always uh, just been fascinated um, with that challenge is how do you get everybody in a company uh, that touches consumers, particularly around food, your point exactly, mm-hmm. and and have them understand purpose values, how you treat people, yes. all of those things, because as you say, everything communicates. But I just want to give a little uh, peek ahead. Uh, we have uh, coming up as a guest on The Crux, um, Matt Murray who's the editor of the Wall Street Journal and a really respected journalist. Oh, terrific guy. Yeah, so um, he he covered GE back in the day um, uh, from Welch, the transition from Welch to Imelt, et cetera. So I've known Matt for a long time, and so I'm really happy he's going to be on. But I just look at the the journal, which I encourage all my students to, to read, and I'm looking at one story that just sort of blows me out of the water, which is Saudi Aramco, which wants to go public and is trying to reassure people uh, that's going to go public, I believe, in 2021, uh, sent out a sort of a, uh, some information that it made $111 billion in 2018. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're doing that as a part of a bond offering, I believe, because they're buying the petrochemical company, Sabic, uh, which mm-hmm. GE sold its plastics bi- business to Sabic. So I'm, I'm familiar with that business as well, too. But it's fascinating to me to see, uh, a, you know, a sort of a national company like Saudi Aramco, um, stepping into uh, the world of transparency. And, yeah, uh, well, we live, you know, we live in a world where nothing can truly be hidden anymore. And so you're almost better off yes. kind of pulling the trigger on yourself and, and shaping that story and sharing exactly who you are and what you're doing. And they say in politics, right, we both come out of the world of politics, is if you don't define yourself, others will. That's right. That's right. And listen, just the size of this, you know, $111 billion in net income in 2018. About um, the size of Cargill. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, one year, one year we had wow. $140 billion. Is that right? Yeah. And, and, and this is, um, uh, had this, they had bigger returns last year than Apple and ExxonMobil combined. And their um, income of $212 billion is similar wow. to the combined military budgets of the members, 28 member states of the European Union. Wow. 
So, you know, we focus in the media, uh, particularly in, in communications, I'd have to say, too, on public companies and yeah. what's going on with public companies. But there are some gigantic, really important private companies. You worked for one. Uh, really, yeah, yeah, you Cargill. Know. You know, and, and, and there's a whole world of uh, large private companies. I mean, Mars is a large private company. Um, and you also have mutual companies. A lot of insurance and financial institutions have been set up that way. And, you know, there are guesstimates in the marketplace. Not all of them are required uh, to provide earnings and, 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 and revenue for a quarter or for a year. Um, but it is interesting that in a world where transparency matters, uh, Aramco and even some of these other organizations are opting to share their earnings and develop uh, their own line of, uh, of reasoning about who they are and where they're going. Did you think... Mike, it was an advantage to Cargill to be a private company? Um, yeah, there are a lot of advantages to being private in the sense that uh, you are in a position to think more long-term, mm -hmm. uh, especially if the, uh, the people that own you are relatively few and they're willing to play it out for the longer term. Yes. So you can make a decision that maybe has a five-year or seven-year or ten-year uh, return uh, period as opposed to, gee, we invested this now and people are going to be looking for a return in yeah. two or three years. Right, exactly. Yeah, and you see that in, in public companies, the shorter terms of CEOs and CMOs and, mm -hmm. and gulp, gulp CCOs as well, too. So, so there yeah. you go. So, Mike, hey, thanks. I'm sorry you're not in the, the Crux studio this week, but uh, we'll see you again soon. Take care. Great. Bye-bye. Welcome back to The Crux. And our, our guest today is Matt Murray. Um, he is one of the most, he has one of the most important journalism jobs in the world. Matt was named editor-in-chief of the Wall Street Journal in June 2018, which means uh, he oversees about uh, 1,200, 1,250 journalists in 60 offices around the world. Matt is sort of a Dow Jones Journal lifer. He joined them in 1994. He is a reporter in Pittsburgh. He moved to the money and investing section three years later covering banking and then uh, was subsequently promoted to deputy managing editor, deputy editor-in-chief, and later to national news editor before getting named to his current role. And welcome to the crux, Matt. Thank you. It's great to be here. Really looking forward to it. So uh, I have to tell a story. I, I know Matt for many years because <laughs> he was the beat reporter for GE, uh, when I was the chief communications officer at GE, I think I was. I think I think actually I was the beat reporter when you got hired there. Gary, exactly right. right. Yeah. So 1999, that would have been, of course, and that's when trees grew to the sky. Our <laughs> stock was splitting three ways. Uh, all things were good. Yeah, uh, and I sorry to sorry and sorry to interrupt, but a lot of those trees in those days were being cut down for print newspapers. Which <laughs> was that kind of an era. Exactly. <laughs> So, so uh, Matt and I have known each other a long time. I've got a lot of respect for him. But I, I have to tell one story before we sort of get to questions. Is I remember Matt calling me 
oh gosh, it was after Jack Welch uh, had left as CEO of GE and uh, in the early 2000s. Matt, you'll remember the date or the year probably. And, and Matt was calling me to tell me that he was going to do a story about Jack's marriage and an affair um, with the editor of HBR. And, you know, as I would every now and then get my back up and say, well, who cares? You know, who cares about Jack's personal life? And, of course, the rest is history. It became a front-page story um, in the journal and elsewhere about not only Jack's uh, personal life, but about some of the uh, benefits that he got when he retired, he received when he retired from GE as CEO. So I always remember you re- reacting with uh, great dignity when, you know, I got <laughs> <laughs> when I got all upset about uh, about that situation. And now looking back, I understand it even better uh, because it was uh, a, a big story. Uh, in many, many ways. Well, if I, if I, well, I, if I have to be honest, you know, uh, at that time I wasn't 100% sure about it myself in some ways. <laughs> it's, uh, it's hard to believe, but it's not that long ago, but it was maybe a slightly more uh, discreet age than uh, the one that's upon us. Yeah. By the way, we, we, we should also say, to be fair to Jack, we should say, of course, that uh, he ended up very seriously uh, uh, involved and married uh, yes. this his wife, who he's married to today, I think uh, happily. So. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> that's that's true. So, so I want to, you know, you've been on the job about uh, uh, about a year now, I guess. Last June. Yeah. Uh, who's the typical journal reader today? How has it changed, Matt? Well, I'd say uh, I kind of put it in two buckets. I mean, the the, the, the journal reader, there's, there's kind of the classic journal reader who's been a journal reader for a long time, yeah, and. Uh, that's sort of a business-oriented person who needs to read the journal for because they're in the markets or because their their boss at their company wants them to read it. Some people read it for their careers. Some people read it for job advice. Uh, that, that's uh, uh, a lot of people still read it for uh, investment tips and things like that. That's always been kind of the core base of us, and that reader is pretty valuable. I really love the journal. Um. You know, we've had people subscribe to us for 40 or 50 years. Now, demographically, that mm-hmm. reader also tends to be, you know, older, uh, pretty male audience, uh, a fairly high net worth. Mm-hmm. Well, I think a sec- uh, go ahead. Go ahead, Matt. No, I, I think I think there's a second bunch uh, I throw in there um, as we've expanded our news remit, particularly in the last 10 or 15 years. There's some readers who, who come to us not really through the business or market lens, particularly, although they're interested in those subjects, but because they like our news approach, you right. know, and, and we've tried <clears throat> very hard, I think with a lot of success, although never perfectly, but with a lot of success to, to play the news pretty straight, to be, to stick to facts, to be uh, small C conservative on interpretation, to, to sort of do a classic uh, job of, of giving you the facts and right. the news. And reporting straight, which I think uh, has appealed to some people who worry about the, the media's direction in this regard. Exactly. Uh, as I say, I don't think we do it perfectly, but I think we get some discriminating readers who like our approach to news. Um, and look, I think there's a third bunch and, and one where we're growing, but we have to do more with. And that, of course, uh, which I think you want to talk about a bit, yeah. is the emerging digital audience yeah. and what they're looking for and how we reach them. And there, so, we're starting to make some inroads with students and others, but we have more work to well, do. Well, listen, mentioning students, I Amanda, my producer and graduate assistant here in the luxurious Crux studio, um, <laughs> knows that I recommend to every student that the one, um, 
you know, news source that they should be reading is the Wall Street Journal. Well, and, that's nice of you. Thank you, Gary. Yeah. So, so listen, uh, to that point about um, digital, you've had a project called Wall Street Journal 2020, which is yeah. sort of about a mobile-first newsroom. So tell me, Matt, what that is, and I want to talk to you about an email I actually got from you last night uh, about all of this. <laughs> Well, I think I think I think we, like all news organizations, are struggling. At least all legacy news organizations, you know, are, are struggling. Particularly, struggling with the digital transition. Um, in our case, uh, the Wall Street Journal uh, print product, for various reasons, including our national footprint, our premium pricing, our high value audience, uh, and our kind of unique niche in business, we had probably the, the greatest. Uh, uh, journalistic uh, business ever mm-hmm. in terms mm-hmm. of uh, print advertising and lasting a long time. It also helps that regulators used to require tombstone ads and other things to run that all ran in the journal. So, like all legacy newsrooms, our, our processes and, and everything we did and how we thought about stories, even the way that our reporters rewarded themselves and and, and thought about hierarchy right. and stuff was around print. Right. You know? right. So, we've obviously been uh, we started our website in 1996, and in the last decade, particularly, we've obviously been heavily engaged in uh, rethinking and making the digital transition. But WSA 2020 was really about accelerating that and forcing through some some difficult adjustments for that digital age. Uh, because really, what happened uh, a few years ago is that we really had kind of a turning point where uh, print really uh, print, I should say, remains very important to us as a product. And right. Right. Still have the largest print news circulation, you know, of, of almost a million in this country. But but the economics of print became a lot tougher, and the growth really very clearly was digital and mobile, almost 100 percent mobile. So we really had to move quickly to, to 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 catch up, frankly. So that involves a whole range of decisions, including uh, story delivery for a mobile audience. Right. Instead right. of one deadline a day, you're ready 24 hours. Presentation for a digital audience different kinds of story types, story types, which means, you know, there's technology and graphics and art implications, there's workflow, a lot of complicated things to do. And, and frankly, you know, we, like I think others, are still figuring out what is the product experience for us on a mobile, right. which, frankly, I don't, I don't think anybody who's, well, maybe, maybe, maybe I'm just too old, but I think all of our surveys would suggest Print is the most satisfying reader product experience, yes. and that's because print is so is such a clearly defined product. How do we get mobile to have the same kind of definitional, uh, emotional interaction? And reader interaction, and, 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 you know, and, and that's and that's where our growth is. Yeah, so, and I've seen you. I've seen you say, Matt, too, and I, I always experience this: is I feel like I'm missing something on mobile, right, or even desktop. <laughs> to that matter. At least I know when I have the paper in front of me, I can go through it in its totality, right? Yeah, and there's, there's, a, a, there's a satisfaction to that. Digital hasn't given you the, the sense of completeness and accomplishment that print does, where you you go through, you feel they these people have put in one place everything I need to know. I can start on here, I can end here, and in however much time I take to read it, I'll have a complete sense of what I need to know today, and I can get about my day. Yeah. Uh, digital, it's like it's never ending, right. and you you can spend an hour going deep and still feel like you put a teaspoon in the ocean. Right, right. So, so tell me how that change that changes everything. I assume, and I also read 
you've sort of separated the print team so that they can make the best print product there is. Yeah. Uh, that makes sense to me. But how, how do you hire now, train? I mean, is it all focused? I mean, primarily, I would I guess I would say on, on uh, digital skills and, 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 and reader satisfaction. I mean, I'd say it changes a lot. I mean, I think the thing to say at, at rock bottom is there's things that, does, that don't change. Uh, and, and I say that because I think everything today is faster and quicker and resources are tougher. And I think that's, that's caused problems for journalism. I think there's been an erosion of standards in yep. some places and, 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 and that sense of, of being overwhelmed by news. There's clickbait and other issues that come with that. Yes. One thing that doesn't change is if you're a reporter here, fundamentally your skill is still reporting. And reporters are still the biggest single job classification for us. And so your ability to, you know, find things out, report accurately, be fair, be straight, tell the story, those skills don't change. Right. And so it's important to start this discussion by saying those rock bottom fundamentals don't change. And I think that to the extent that some people in journalism have thought they were outmoded or outdated (laughs) and moved away from them, it's been bad for the profession. Right. Um, However, uh, you know, how reporters uh, generate uh, uh, their own sense of reward and satisfaction has changed. You you don't have a print page one uh, that quite is uh, the the, the, the all being measure of everything anymore. You have to be happy happy getting good space on digital. You have to promote your story. You have to think about visuals and art and all kinds of things you didn't have to think about before. I'd say journalism is much more of a team sport today because instead of the reporter filling a space, it's the reporter, it's the art, it's the uh, social promotion. Exactly. A full package. Yeah. There's a whole team that stands behind the reporter. So collegiality and collaborational skills are a lot more important. (laughs) I mean, you know, you can't, it's it's much harder to be sort of the grumpy jerk in the corner. Well, that's what I was thinking of when I laughed. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) So, and then, and then across the newsroom, it certainly is the case that there's a much larger group of different jobs that we need filled and many more paths to success here than we used to have. So we have engineers in the newsroom and audience data people in the newsroom and graphics and visuals. It, that, that's one of our largest departments now. And for anybody who's been reading the Wall Street Journal for a long time, well, I yeah. think you know, <laughs> in the last decade, the visuals entered into the equation at all for us exactly. um, in, in a serious way. Um, and, there, and there were just many more pieces that have to fit together, which can be onerous. I mean, I, I have to think about all kinds of things about, you know, our tech products and things like that that I don't think my predecessors Previous ever editors. thought about at all. Yeah. Right. On, on the other hand, it's exciting because there's a lot of different pathways to success in the newsroom today and a lot of different things that you can do. And, and I, I one of my lines, but I think it's true, is that journalism with what's happening in technology is like the movie business in, in 1916. You know, there's a whole bunch of <laughs> things coming our way if we can get it right that will be exciting, I think. And they weren't so talking. We, they weren't talking yet in 1916, were they? Right, <laughs> right. But they, but the, you had the long movies coming along, and then talking came about uh, ten years later, and color, and and then all those other things. I, I think it's still like that here. And so uh, one of the things about being a mobile newsroom and being mobile first is having the technology skills in place to even think beyond the phone, because mm-hmm. we may well in ten years be beyond the phone. Exactly. Um, so. So let me. So let. Play this out for me, Matt, if you don't mind. And this is going to be tough for me. 
Um, and I may have to lay down on the floor of the studio here as we go through this. But, um, you know, so you, you guys just did a long story about GE. I think Burned Out was the, was the big title, and yeah. for which you just won an award of some kind, I, I saw. So, um, so tell me, and, and it, by the way, for listeners, it's about what's happened at GE and, and the problems that, and challenges that they're having. And uh, obviously you were proud about that story, proud of that story. So how do you play that out from a audience standpoint to make sure you as many people get to see that work as possible? Well, in that case, we did a pretty aggressive promotion over a few days. We had an email that went out to subscribers who signed up for it. We played it up heavily on the website. We played it up in all kinds of social promotion channels. And that was a bit of a word of mouth story. Too. Yeah. Um, and... Well, but it's a challenge. I mean, to, to, to take off from that, you know, it, it's every story. It, it, it's funny, you know, we're, we're bigger than we've ever been. We have more subscribers than we've ever had. Uh, we just did a deal with Apple News that is getting yeah. our story exposed to, to a lot more people. And yet, in a perverse way, if you know what I mean, in the digital world where uh, there are, everybody's a publisher and con- we're all swimming in content, we're bigger than we've ever been, but we're also in some ways we have to scream louder to get attention for certain things. Right. And so, so you know, you have to be able to do a, a deep, texty narrative like GE and get attention for that. And we have to be able to do. Uh, uh, we did a, tele- a one-hour documentary oh. partnering with Frontline not long ago about an Indian reservation, and we have to be able to break news and get those headlines out and. and do a lot of different. We have to do visual projects. Yeah. Do a lot of different things, and they all speak to people in different ways. And so, some things are going to really reinforce those hardcore subscribers. Some people are going to. Some things are going to bring in new readers. Some people are going to go completely off our platform. Right. It's an interesting thing. It's exciting, but we have to have a really full menu of different ways to bring the journal to yeah, people. Yeah, I, I remember on the GE story because uh, it's burned in my brain. That, uh, yeah. you know, Good. that mission accomplished. <laughs> right. That you also did a webinar of sorts with uh, Tom Greida and Ted Mann. Yeah, we had, we, and we, 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 had, we had a call. So, yes. you know, we, we, like a few other organizations, have built a pretty big operation doing, you know, events and live journalism. And, and it's almost, a, it's almost, that's almost a new platform in and of itself where people want to experience things live on stage. Exactly. I, 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 I sometimes think, in this digital world where everything is virtual, people really relish the chance to see real people. Yeah, I agree. So we started doing a, a, a reg, pretty regular conference calls with uh, subscribers. It's one of the benefits you get as uh, uh, being a subscriber here where we put our reporters on the phone and talk about a particular story or a topic. Uh, they've, they've been quite successful. So we did one of those for GE. Excellent. Hey, so speaking of subscribers, so last night as I was pre- prepping to talk to you, I got an email from you, yeah. and I, I, you know, I thought it was maybe personal, but it was it was to all subscribers, and you know, it was very per- I read every one, every one, <laughs> and about elevating our discourse. And so, you guys are going to make some changes to try to have a little bit more of a civil and productive discourse with your subscribers. So, can you just tell us about that? I think there are five things you guys are going to do. Uh, yeah, and you know, look, we we've wrestled over time with uh, everybody here. I don't need to tell anybody listening to this what it's like sometimes to uh, go to comment sections on ours or other sites and see 
what they're like, you know, and, and, and sometimes they get quite bad and, and quite negative and you get people beating up on each other. And a lot of news organizations a few years ago, part of their solution for that was to just stop doing comment. Right. And I think that was, A, worse for that because what happened is people took all their complaints or questions about stories of the publication public to Twitter. Right. <laughs> uh, which is not better. And second, look, I think that we want readers uh, to be able to speak and express their opinions and and share their voices with each other. The, the challenge, I think, and I think we've all learned this more and more about the Internet, is a small number of, of somewhat persistent uh, extreme voices, and I mean extreme like in terms of their obsessiveness, not from their political view necessarily, can, can ruin the experience for everybody. Right. And people want to have good experience. They want to hear from each other. Exactly. You know, they want a digital equivalent of that curated letters to the editor page. <laughs> so, you know, we spent a lot of time looking at this. And so we're, we're, we're putting in a few guardrails, like we'll have conversations on some articles only for a certain amount of time. They can't live on there forever. <laughs> we're going to be moderating a little bit more. But we've also working to elevate exemplary responses from readers and give them more attention. We're going to be asking questions so that people can, can respond to a question and hopefully help frame the debate a bit. You know, we're, we're, we're getting a lot of letters back with a lot of questions. And a few negative responses, but a lot of positive responses for people who want to be part of this, but haven't found it a very welcoming environment. Exactly. And, and you know, the only, the only, we will, we will knock out very offensive and you know really extreme kinds of uh, comments. But we've done that anyway for yeah. a while. So, and, and the thing I like about it too, Matt, is that the, all of the articles, the open articles um, for discussion. Uh, are going to include a question from a journal reporter to sort of start yeah. start things, which I think is fantastic. You yeah, know? yeah. I think I think. Look, I think this is, this goes back to what I was saying before. I think we're all all of us who were legacy publications are still figuring out procedures and interactions and protocols for digital products and and what works. And so this is one that is meant to to really foster positive engagement for our subscribers and members, uh, but also recognizing, you know, the Internet's unique environment that yeah. has its own challenge. Exactly. So uh, from my experience, I you know, I sometimes try to follow threads or uh, on Twitter, and it, it, it can go downhill quickly, and so I stop, right? Yeah, I mean, and people, it, it also turns personal really fast. Like there's something about our uh, there's something about that being you know about our personal inhibitions that goes away on twitter exactly and it, it's personal and nasty and it, it's actually really uh, a horrible experience to read or, or, or participate in it's a great discussion with matt murray the editor of the wall street journal in fact it was so great that we asked matt to come back for a second week and so you'll hear the rest of that interview with Matt next week on The Crux. And Matt will talk about some of the stories he's interested in covering in the months ahead. So thanks for joining The Crux, and we'll go back to the, uh, back to the show.